0: Scripture reading this morning is from various verses across Exodus chapters 21, 22, and 23. These are the laws you are to set before them. If you buy a Hebrew servant, he is to serve you for six years. But in the seventh year, he shall go free without paying anything. If he comes alone, he is to go free alone. But if he has a wife when he comes, she is to go with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons and daughters, the the woman and her children shall belong to her master, and only the man shall go free. But if the servant declares, I love my master and my wife and children and do not want to go free, then his master must take him before the judges. He shall take him to the door or the doorpost and pierce his ear with an awl. Then he will be his servant for life. If anyone strikes a person with a fatal blow to be put to death, however, he shall be put to death. However, if it is not done intentionally, but God lets it happen, they are to flee to a place I will designate. But if anyone schemes and kills someone deliberately, that person is to be taken from my altar and put to death. Anyone who attacks their father or mother is to be put to death. Anyone who kidnaps someone is to be put to death, whether the victim has been sold or is still in the kidnapper's possession. Anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. If people quarrel with one, and one person hits another with a stone or with their fist and the victim does not die, but is confined to bed, the one who struck the blow will not be held liable if the other can get up and walk around without, with a staff. However, the guilty party must pay the injured person for any loss of time and see that the victim is completely healed. Whoever steals an ox or a sheep and slaughters it or sells it must pay back five head of cattle for the ox and four sheep for the sheep. If a thief is caught breaking in at night and is struck a fatal blow, the defender is not guilty of bloodshed. But if it happens after sunrise, the defender is guilty of bloodshed. Anyone who steals must certainly make restitution, but if they have nothing, they must be sold to pay for their theft. If the stolen animal is found alive in their possession, whether ox or donkey or sheep, they must pay back double. If anyone grazes their livestock in a field or vineyard and lets them astray, and they graze in someone else's field, the offender must make restitution from the best of their own field or vineyard. Do not mistreat or oppress a foreigner, for you are foreigners in Egypt. Do not take advantage of the widow widow or fatherless. If you do and they cry out to me, I will certainly hear their cry. My anger will be aroused and I will kill you with the sword. Your wives will become widows and your children fatherless. If you lend money to one of my people among you who is needy, do not treat it like a business deal. Charge no interest. If you take your neighbor's cloak as a pledge, return it by sunset because the cloak is the only covering your your neighbor has. What else can they sleep in? When they cry out to me, I will hear for I am compassionate. Do not spread false reports. Do not help a guilty person by being a malicious witness. Do not follow the crowd in doing wrong. When you give testimony in a lawsuit, do not pervert justice by siding with the crowd, and do not show favoritism to a poor person in a lawsuit. If you come across your enemy's ox or donkey wandering off, be sure to return it. If you see the donkey of someone who, who you hate has fallen down under its load, do not leave it there. Be sure to help him with it. Do not deny justice to your poor people in their lawsuits. Have nothing to do with a false charge, and do not put an innocent or honest person to death, for I will not acquit the guilty. Do not accept a bribe, for a bribe blinds those who see and twists the words of the innocent. Do not oppress a foreigner, for you you yourselves know how it feels to be foreigners, because you were foreigners in Egypt. This is the word of the Lord.
1: let me read a few more verses here at the end of chapter 3, starting at verse 10. For six years you are to sow your fields and harvest the crops, but during the seventh year let the land lie unplowed and unused. Then the poor among your people may get food from it, and the wild animals we eat what is left. Do the same with your vineyard and your olive grove. Six days do your work, but on the seventh day do not work so that your ox and your donkey may rest and so that the slave born in your household and the foreigner living among you may be refreshed. Be careful to do everything I have said to you. Do not invoke the names of other gods. Do not let them be heard on your lips. Let's pray together. God, as we look at this complicated word from you, Give us minds to understand, hearts to receive, and hands and feet that are ready to obey. Jesus, help us. Give us your Holy Spirit. Uh, Give us willing and ready hearts and bless this time as we study your word. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Oftentimes in the course of a relationship, As a romantic relationship begins to develop, uh, both individuals begin to realize, perhaps, that they detect certain kinds of feelings for one another. They're reading each other's messages. Communication seems to become a little fuzzy. Uh, Affections and feelings are arising. Then there comes a time when they feel the need to have a conversation that is often called the DTR define the relationship. It's a conversation where two people raise with each other uh, sort of a a, a series of questions like what is this? And who are we to each other? And how will we define how we ought to interact and regard one another? Uh, Paula and I both remember our very first DTR Um, Although we recall different versions of it, uh, mine's the correct one, of course. God and Moses here atop Mount Sinai are having a sort of DTR, if that's not too irreverent a way to describe this. God is establishing his covenant if you'll remember from our readings over the last two weeks, with a near firestorm enveloping them. What a setting. The holiness of God on full display, no one doubting or wondering who it is that this relationship is being made with. It's God, Yahweh, the Great I Am. God is establishing a promised relationship called covenant and now they're discussing the terms of the relationship. Not just how you relate to me but also how you ought to relate to others. That's what these laws are all about. Not just random moral rules that need to be followed, rules that are doled out by an arbitrary deity, These are relational guidelines, strictures, ways in which we learn how life created by that God works best. Not just how you relate to him, but how we're to relate to one another. And after having looked at the summary of God's law in the Ten Commandments, as Pastor Yancey taught us last week, Now God continues to unfold additional laws that spell out the social responsibility of God's people. That's what we're gonna look at today. We'll try to weave through some of the complexities that we find here and draw out some things that might be of help to us. We wanna start, first of all, I wanna bring to you, first of all, an understanding Of how we're to read these laws. So number one, the reading of the law. How are we to understand this? How are we even to approach these series of laws? Four quick points to help orient us. Number one, first it's worth noting just how many different areas of life these laws speak into. The rights of servants, personal injuries, personal property, sexual relations, the mistreatment of foreigners, widows, the fatherless, lawsuits and testimony in court, the care of one's enemies, justice for poor people, Sabbath rest. Now, just looking at that as a whole, what can we learn from this? I think it's simply this. The God of Israel is presenting us as belonging, not just to a series of rules, but to a person. We belong to him, to a God, and that he is a God that belongs in our life, not just to the so-called religious department of life, but to every department of life. His laws, his authority, his concern, his grace, his love extends to every area of life. I wonder if that's true of you. If you see God in that fashion, a God who has a claim on every square millimeter of your body and soul. Is there a room in your house, if we could use that metaphor, from which you've been keeping God out, hanging up a little bit of a keep out sign? Is there ways in which you have not let God in into your spending habits, into your romantic life, into your eating and drinking habits, into your work life, into your words, your speech? Different areas of life, in fact, all areas of life. But number two, second, when reading these laws, it's crucial to remember that grace comes before law. Here's what I mean. How did God introduce his law beginning with the 10 Commandments? Do you remember from last week, Exodus chapter 20, verse 1, and God spoke all these words, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Then he continues, you shall have no other gods before me, and so on and so forth. In other words, God says first, and most importantly, I am your God. I've made you my people. I rescued you. I liberated you from the clutches of slavery. I love you. Now, here's what you ought to do in response. Now, here's how you ought to live in light of my prior love. Jack Miller, an old Presbyterian pastor who has since passed on, once used to distinguish the importance of this sequence. So many of us by nature, or in accordance with other religious systems, believe that God comes to us and teaches us the following logic. I obey God's law, therefore I am loved by God. In other words, it's our obedience that becomes the merit, the way by which we earn. God's favor, his blessing, his love. The Christian faith turns that upside down. Do you know that? Here's the logic of the gospel. I am loved, therefore, I obey God's law. I'm loved, therefore, it's a delight to become more like the God who has loved me so. I am loved and accepted, and so therefore, I do these things a life of righteousness, obedience, and love, not in order to earn God's favor, that's already been purchased for me by Christ on the cross and resurrection, but I do it as an overflow of joy, as a debt of gratitude, as a longing to become more like my Savior. I obey because I'm loved, not in order to be loved. Beloved, love precedes law. That's the logic of the gospel. Third, as we read these various laws, it's also important to keep in mind that the main point of every single one of them is love. In Galatians chapter 5, verses 13 and 14, the Apostle Paul writes this, Through love serve one another, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And that, of course, is just following what Jesus himself taught in Matthew 22, that all the law and the prophets hang on two commandments, love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. Which means for all that's going on in this long passage, as well as other laws that you find in the Old Testament, There's your answer key to the meaning of these sometimes confusing laws. Every one of them expresses some principle of love. And love not just as a feeling or an emotion towards other people, but love as an action putting other people first, prioritizing their needs and interests, even at cost to myself. The law is love. The final point and observation I want to make about how we're to read God's law is this, that we need to read these laws in light of Jesus. In Luke 24, verse 44, Jesus says, everything written about me in the law of Moses must be fulfilled. In other words, all of this needs to revolve around and be understood in light of what Jesus did in being the Son of God come in flesh, standing in our place in the courtroom of heaven on the cross, dying the death that we should have died, living the life that we should have lived, rising again and ascending into glory. So what does that mean, then? For these laws to be read in light of him, it means a couple things. Number one, it means that Jesus was the perfect fulfillment of God's laws of love. If you want to know what a perfect, flawless embodiment of these laws look like, look at Jesus's life. He did it perfectly and he did it on our behalf, fulfilling all righteousness in every way that we couldn't. But secondly, it means that Jesus has purchased our total forgiveness when we fail to obey God's commands. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for those who fall short. You are forgiven of all your sins in Christ. But thirdly, it means that all the Old Testament laws are reconfigured around him. And so in Colossians chapter 2, verse 17, we're told this about God's law. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. not long ago, while I was working at my desk, I looked over and I could see coming down the stairway to our basement a a, a sort of dark gray shadow that was cast along the wall. And it was my youngest daughter coming down with a, a, a shadow cast from the light above, and I couldn't yet see her, but I could see the shadow that preceded her. And as I waited just a beat or two, eventually, the silent shadow became a wonderful child who I was excited to embrace, of course. Now, this is what Paul is saying here, that there's a shadow that came first. That's what some of these ceremonial laws were. But the real fulfillment of what those laws actually were pointing to was Jesus. So when Jesus arrived, there was no longer any need for that anticipatory ritual because we have the reality in Christ. In other words, when my daughter came down, I didn't run over to the shadow and hug the wall. I hugged the real thing, the real one, the reality which is why we no longer need to make bloody animal sacrifices, to make atonement for our sins. Jesus is the perfect lamb of God. Jesus is the sacrificial goat. Jesus is the one who made atonement for our sins. And that is why the ceremonial and ritual laws are no longer binding in our day. And it's why the civil laws that were specific to the nation of Israel are also no longer binding, as Christ's kingdom now extends to all peoples across the whole world. But God's moral laws are still binding. And in every case, we're to read these laws and do our best to discern any underlying moral principles that still apply to this day, that still show us how to live a life of love even here and now. And that's what we're gonna to try to do now with the remaining time that we have. Let's look at the meaning of these laws. There's a lot of things going on here. I'm gonna run through it quickly. We'll talk a little bit more during our Q&A time. You can jot down notes and throw some zingers at me later on if you'd like to. But let's take a look at all these ways in which God calls his people to social responsibility, to love of neighbor. Let's look, first of all, about what God says about the treatment of servants. That's there in chapter 21 at the top in verses 2 through 6. If you buy a Hebrew slave, he is to serve you for six years, but in the seventh year, he shall go free without paying anything, and so on and so forth. And first of all, since passages like these were often used in the 18th and 19th century to defend and to justify American chattel slavery, I think it's important to note that what's described here is quite different from historical American slavery. First, Old Testament slavery and servanthood was not race-based. You hear even that reference to a Hebrew servant. Secondly, it was not lifelong. Thirdly, Old Testament slavery and servanthood was not tolerant of mistreatment and abuse, which is actually the point of this passage. Fourthly, Old Testament slavery and servanthood was not involuntary. You'll notice even later on in the passage, the strong measures that are taken to prohibit kidnapping of any kind, intolerable, But also, we have to understand that most Hebrew slaves and servants became that, became a servant, because they themselves sold themselves into a contractual agreement with a wealthier neighbor, usually because of a personal financial crisis like severe debt that they couldn't otherwise pay off. In other words, it was actually an arrangement that helped them to be able to pay down their debt through their day-to-day labor. They didn't have a big, massive savings account, as it were. They had no resources from their family to pull upon. So here, let me just work for you for these years. It was something closer to what we know as indentured servanthood, and you'll notice then that choice and agency in the servant is preserved. In chapter 21, verse 5 and 6, as it details there, the servant even had the power, the agency, to decide to stay with his master for life. It was a choice that he had. Fifthly, and Lastly, the slavery and servanthood that we find in the Bible did not treat these individuals as non-human property. Notice this law isn't included in the personal property section of this chapter, which comes later on. These laws consistently recognize these servants as bearers of God's image. And so really, it's only with a severe and really immoral distortion of God's word, of these laws... That these passages can be used to justify anything like what we saw in previous centuries of chattel slavery in America. So then what is the point here? What can we learn and draw from in these few verses at the top? In chapter 21, as one commentator notes, the presentation of these social laws begins in the area in which the Israelites were most likely to go astray in regard to loving their neighbor. That is the treatment of indentured servants. Why? Because it's always easy in our hearts for us to do what we can to take advantage of people. To take advantage of people that are actually in a weaker social position. Interestingly, the whole point is to protect these servants from exploitation, to protect the rights of the servants and not just their masters. This is really, really different from what we find in ethical codes in those days in surrounding cultures. For example, in the Code of Hammurabi, which was written just about this same time in the second millennium BC, just down the street in Babylon, there, we find that there was a highly stratified society that was actually encoded and that was actually built out and uh, uh, preserved from generation to generation. It was a moral code that treated slaves, commoners, and nobles, or the highest classes, quite differently. Different penalties, different blessings, different ways of behaving. But what's important to note here is that this law stands out because there's a restriction on the length of one's servitude. There's no permanent servitude. Serve for six years, and then on the seventh year, you're free to go. In other words, these laws were resisting a permanent class distinction between people. Perhaps it's something like this principle that the Apostle Paul draws upon in Galatians chapter 3, 26, when he says, so in Christ Jesus you are all children of God through faith, for all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. There's a a desire to not leave a person or a family entrenched in a certain level of society for generation after generation, especially not struggling on the margins of society. Do you hear the mercy, indeed even the justice, of what God intended his people to look like? Lifting each other up living side by side as one people. Beloved, think about this. What would it look like for life within the church community to look differently than it does outside of the church? Uh, little by little, erasing some of the unhealthy distinctions that rise up between people of different so-called social classes based solely upon the resources that you have or don't have, based upon your earning capacity, based upon the kind of lifestyle that you live. What would it look like for the church to be different? To love one another in this fashion. This, I think, is a principle that's worth reflecting on that maybe unexpectedly these servant laws might put upon our radar. Let's look about this second category, personal injury. Personal injury in chapter 21, verses 12 through 14. We hear anyone who strikes a person with a fatal blow is to be put to death. However, it is not done, if it is not done intentionally, but God lets it happen, they are to flee to a place I will designate. But if anyone schemes and kills someone deliberately, that person is to be taken away from my altar and put to death. There's all kinds of personal injuries that this chapter works through. We only have an excerpt of one kind, really the most severe kind, the taking of life. But it also enumerates kidnapping, forms of physical assault, ways in which people are hurt and harmed. Top of the list is murder. Now even here, God's law distinguishes between premeditated homicide and manslaughter, in other words, accidental killing when someone does not hurt someone else intentionally. It's an important thing for us to understand the way in which God regards our bodies. Do you know that God does not ignore when people are physically hurt or harmed? Your bodies are sacred. Temples of the Holy Spirit, as we're told in 1 Corinthians. Yes, there is room for a moral category called accidents. That's remarkable, too. God is not a raging God who has no room for nuance or uh, understanding of the gradations of one's motives and circumstances. He even provides a place for those who commit an accidental murder, manslaughter again where he refers here to a place I will designate, verse 13, to which you are given to flee. It's later going to be called a city of refuge. It's talked about in Deuteronomy chapter 4. A safe haven for those who might need a period of cooling off or even shelter from those who may want to take vengeance against them. Who's a God with such fine-tuned justice like this and care even for those who do wrong. But I think what we're to take away from this too is not only the care of God for our physical bodies when they're hurt or harmed, but also the way in which God regards death. Murder is a very serious thing. I think that's obvious. But we need to understand how much this reflects the sacredness of human life. When God looks at you, not only into your eyes, but even scans your physical body, he sees an image of himself. It's like he's looking in the mirror. Have you thought about that, brothers and sisters? Have you thought about that? God looks at your body, your life, and in it, he is well pleased. Your life is sacred. These laws point to that. The taking of human life is a grave atrocity. And of course, this helps us in our reflections around the horrors of war in Ukraine, as well as the anniversary of the death of Trayvon Martin 10 years ago yesterday. God takes these things very seriously. Personal injury. Let's look at personal property. Chapter 22, verses 1 through 5, walks us through this. Let me read it. Whoever steals an ox or a sheep and slaughters it or sells it must pay back five head of cattle for the ox and four sheep for the sheep. Let me look at verse 5. If anyone grazes their livestock in a field or vineyard and lets them stray and they graze in someone else's field, the offender must make restitution from the best of their own field or vineyard. These are verses that address stolen, lost, or damaged property. It is important to notice that these laws recognize the God-given right to personal property ownership. It is a good thing to have things that belong to you. God recognizes that. So much so that he's here regulating how to respond once one wrongfully takes that property from you, steals that possession, or damages it. God cares about our possessions. We're taught again and again about the dangers of greed. We're taught again and again that we need to steward those possessions and use them in service of other people. Yes, But he does not despise that we possess, not in itself. And God here prescribes that if one steals or takes or even damages things that we own, their obligation and love to us is restitution, which is simply an ethic that means that we have to give back that which was taken. Yes, you need to say sorry once you've stolen or damaged someone else's goods. You must confess your sin if you did it intentionally to God first and foremost and even to your neighbor. But you must not stop there. If you have taken something, you need to give it back. I wonder, friends, if there are ways in which you presently need to think of ways you need to give back that which you have sinfully taken from a friend or a neighbor. Now, maybe it is actually a physical good, uh, maybe something that you took from them many years ago that you need to return as part of your repentance. Maybe it's intellectual property, credit for work at work that you've been taking, that you need to return to that person. Maybe it's their good name because you've been slandering them, whether a person you know that you're just tired of or a person you don't know, but that you've been trolling online. There is such thing as the theft of one's reputation that you now are on the hook according to God's law to restore, to repair, to give back according to the principles of restitution, which is to say, to say good things about them in the measure in which you have said bad things about them, stealing their reputation. What might God be calling you in love to do today? Notice that these verses even call us to make restitution in the case of negligence, even when you intended no harm. You saw that in verse 5, if anyone grazes their livestock in a field and then they kind of munch on someone else's pasture, eating away their resources and their livelihood, well, you need to pay them back. You weren't the one that ate it. It was just your negligence that allowed your cattle or your donkey to roam over there, but you're still on the hook. God knows that it's not just about punishment, it's about restoration in a broken and a fallen world. God cares about the just and loving treatment of one another's property. Oh, maybe this is something we need to think about in our relations with our neighbors immediately to our right and to our left. Fourthly, sexual relations. You saw this mentioned here in chapter 22, verse 16. If a man seduces a virgin who is not pledged to be married and sleeps with her, he must pay the bride price and she shall be his wife. If her father absolutely refuses to give her to him, he must still pay the bride price for virgins. Now, of course, this reflects the well-known concern that the Bible has for the misuse of sexual intimacy and not only intimacy, but also its concern for family. Now to be clear, the situation that this is addressing is not one of assault or trafficking, but rather consensual relations. And what's being commented on here is the importance of preserving this intimacy within the context of mutual commitment, specifically the covenantal commitment of marriage. But what are we to do in extramarital moments of intimacy? A few things to notice. First, did you note it's the man that is held most responsible? This stands in contrast to ancient ethics found across the Near East. Usually, as you may know, the woman is placed to uh, blame is placed on the woman no matter the circumstances. She is held responsible, but here the Bible flips the script. It is he who is held primarily responsible. And this, of course, stands in contrast not only to ancient ethics, but sadly, even to modern norms when all too often men are given a pass. Secondly, notice the protection that's provided for the woman, which is precisely the point here. In ancient society, women were, of course, far more economically vulnerable. And so, of course, the way in which a woman's opportunity to be married or not to be and to be in a relationship or not to be really determined her economic and social future. We're told here that the man is liable in such a circumstance to pay a substantial sum that's called the bride price, which to some people has come off as if this is just this financial transaction, this woman is being bought as if she were property. No, no, this actually refers to a payment that was a guarantee of support given to the wife in the event that something might happen to her future husband or to their marriage. In other words, it was sort of a prepayment, a kind of combination of life insurance, in case her husband died, and a prenup. This was protection for a woman, who left on her own if the relationship were to dissolve or because of their indiscretions, things weren't going, to make out, weren't going to work out, that he would move on fine and she would be left in the trenches. No, no, God would take care of her. And thirdly, and lastly, of course, this passage reaffirms the Bible's teaching that God created sex as a gift to be shared within marriage, a a way in which one is protected against uh, living with intimacy with other people, saying, "I, I will exchange my body with you, but not my bank account. I'll exchange my body with you, but not my heart, not my everything this degree of interpersonal nakedness is meant to be shared within the safety and the flourishing of the covenant of marriage fifthly let's take a look at the care for the vulnerable god's concern for the foreigner the widow and the orphan is on full display here because these were and really still are specially vulnerable people easily exploited categories of person in society chapter 22 verse 21 says this do not mistreat or oppress a foreigner for you were foreigners in Egypt do not take advantage of the widow or the fatherless if you do and they cry out to me I will certainly hear their cry it's almost like God has his ear tuned specially Uh, to the orphan, the fatherless, to to the cry of the widow, to the cry of the foreigner, the refugee who has no home. Uh, You you know uh, mothers amongst us where you can have a crowd of children in a playground or a classroom or even in church and you can hear their cry, maybe even in one of the back rooms here and you're immediately perked up saying, oh, 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 is, is that my child? Is that my child? That's how God's ear is tuned towards the cries of the vulnerable. What a God he is. And also in chapter 23, verse 9, do not oppress a foreigner. And again and again, we hear the basis for this appeal. You heard it twice in chapter 22, 21. And in 23, 9, God says this, why should you care for the foreigner? because you yourselves know how it feels to be foreigners because you were foreigners in Egypt. It's grace, it's empathy, it's love that should stir up the will to care for those on the margins. Don't you know how much God has loved you, how he has rescued you, how he has had regard for you in your weakness and helplessness? Yes? Then go love the weak. Go love those who are helpless. Go care for those who have great needs. It's a call to compassion, isn't it? As the wonderful Old Testament scholar Christopher Wright has written, biblical justice goes beyond a calculus of rights and deserts because it is fundamentally relational. It always blends into compassion for those who are vulnerable. Will we hear God's concern for these, and including also God's concern for the poor? You heard this in chapter 23, verse 6. Do not deny justice to your poor people in their lawsuits. And also 23, 3. Do not show favoritism to a poor person in a lawsuit. And that last verse is interesting because it is saying have special regard for those who are in trouble, but don't treat them unjustly as far as favoritism and partiality are concerned. That's a way of saying treat them with compassion, but don't patronize them. In other words, treating them fairly under the law is actually a way to regard their dignity, to show respect to them. And notice here in chapter 23, which I read at the end there, verses 10 and 11, we're told about the obligation to serve the poor with generosity. Let me read it again. For six years you're to sow your fields and harvest the crops. But during the seventh year, let the land lie unplowed and unused. Then the poor among your people may get food from it, and the wild animals will eat what is left. Do the same with your vineyard and your olive grove. What does that mean? God is saying, out of love, out of compassion, don't live simply to maximize your profit. But rather live generously by intentionally pulling back from what you could otherwise maximize. And here, in what was called the Sabbath year, for one year, let your personal fields, your vineyards, your olive groves, your crops lay there freely for people that don't have other means to take from, to harvest from, to live off of. Oh, friends, what could that look like in your life where we are intentionally not spending ourselves to the limits of our earning potential, but rather we are intentionally cordoning off groves of our earnings, as it were, Groves of our time and energy that we are specifically devoting to, spending on in the care of those in our lives whom we love with God's love for the poor foreigner, widow, and orphan. What could generosity in your life look like? A Sabbath year, as it were. Giving things that you otherwise would have spent on yourself and spending it on others. Do you know that actually was a tradition of Lent? That as people took days of fasting or meals of fasting, that those resources that were to be spent on myself, on this food, I'm instead going to give as alms for the poor. Maybe the next 40 days or so can be a time in which you too practice generosity. Lastly, and we're going to finish up with this, of course, God's call to love our enemies, chapter 3. If you come across your enemy's ox or donkey wandering off, be sure to return it. But if you see the donkey of someone who hates you fallen down under its load, just leave it there. He deserves it. Don't leave it there. Be sure you help them with it. Another part of the Old Testament, Proverbs 25, says this, If your enemy is hungry, give him food to eat. If he's thirsty, give him water to drink. And Jesus himself said it, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Not, not just don't repay evil for evil, but do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. I wonder, friends, are there those who have been treating you as their adversary? Are there those who have been hurting you that God, by his grace, might be calling you to love with a mournful love, because that's what it is. To love even out of your poverty of soul, even out of your pain. To, good, to do good to those who hate you, to bless those who curse you. And it's here, of course, that we begin to see even more clearly the way in which Christ himself embodied these laws so perfectly. He was the one who loved his enemy Oh, yes, even you and me. Uh, Loved those who crucified him, crying out to the Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He who cared for the vulnerable perfectly, and even while in doing that, suffering personal injury. Uh, The one who had all of his belongings taken from him, and yet continued in love, even unto death on the cross. Oh, dear friends, do you see the Christ that emerges with beauty out of these laws? Not just random strictures and rules that we're called to follow, but a person who kind of rises up adorned by all these different commands and calls to love. Will you, dear friends, dare to love like him? Because this is the call that we might more and more put on the moral beauty of Jesus. It's not just a call and invitation to being right and doing right, but it's to be beautiful and to live beautifully. And it's actually through that that we become witnesses to our neighbor, attractional draws to those immediately around us. Moses himself later said in Deuteronomy chapter 4 verse 6 that the watching world is to see how you live together in community embodying these things and get attracted to you and ask questions about this God. He says, observe these laws carefully, for this will show your wisdom and understanding to the nations who will hear about all these decrees and say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. And Jesus said a similar thing in Matthew 5 when he said, let your light shine before others that they may see your good works and praise your Father in heaven. See, friends, what we're called to do and be is not just to be more beautiful individuals, but collectively to be a more beautiful community. What could it look like for our church, our little band of Christ followers, to start to put on some of these embodiments of love? What kind of community could it make us into? What sort of new family could we be? What kind of dazzling, unexpected, even countercultural beam of light in a time of darkness could we be if we lived like this, if we loved like this, because we have been loved like this? this. Let's pray. Jesus, we need your help for all these things, and so we pray that you would give us wisdom, that you would give us grace. We love you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.